Thanks for being here with us today. We are grateful, getting sorted here, we are grateful that you would join together to worship Jesus. We need to be reminded each and every Sunday of why we gather. We need to be reminded of what's true and right and good. We need to be reminded of who Jesus is and who we are in him, don't we? You can say amen louder. We, we gather together to be reminded about the truth of Jesus Christ and to rejoice in that truth and then hopefully to go out in that truth as well. Well, thanks for joining with us. My name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here. We are going through the letter, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be reading chapter 8. This is chapter 8 in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is God's holy inspired word for us today. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no, one, no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom are all things and through whom we exist." However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ." Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, help us see your word clearly, Lord. Help us apply your word to our life. God, sometimes Lord, we, can, we can get distracted by the, the talk of food, Lord, and, and fail to see the principle that you would have for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us see the, the principles of your word and how to apply this to our lives Holy Spirit, we are desperately in need of you. Our thoughts are often darkened without you, Lord. We, we need you to enlighten us, to enliven our hearts and minds. Thank you, Lord, that you've given all who are in Christ Jesus a new mind and a new heart. So, Lord, we have confidence when we ask you to illuminate our minds, enliven our hearts. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Enable all of us to hear from you today. Enable me to preach through you today. 
God, we are looking to you, Lord, and we are confident that you are faithful. So would you meet us today in Jesus' name? Amen. You know, most of the time, we don't struggle with the big decisions of, of what's right and wrong. Most of the time, we don't struggle on what's clear in Scripture, right? You, you know, you can know the, the clear rights and wrongs of Scripture, where, where Scripture clearly commands us to do something or where Scripture clearly prohibits something. That's not what we generally struggle with, right? We, we know we, when, we, when we came to the passages on adultery that we read through earlier, most of us don't struggle knowing that that's wrong and we can say no to adultery, we don't struggle with knowing that, that sex outside of God's ordained covenant of marriage is wrong. We, we don't struggle to know those things because they're really clear in Scripture. But you know what? It's hard. It's those areas that aren't clear. What do we do then? What do we do then when we have a right? You know, God has given us freedom in Christ Jesus, right? He's given us liberty in Christ Jesus. And in every way, he has freed us from being enslaved to the law. He's freed us from it. We are no longer under bondage to the law. We're free from the curse of the law. That's really good news. You know, so Paul tells us in, in Romans, he says, where all things are lawful. And, 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 and that's true. All things are lawful for us. In Corinthians, he tells us, but not all things are profitable. So how do we know? How do we know what's right? How do we know what freedoms we can exercise, and how to exercise those freedoms. It, it can be challenging, can't it? I want you to think for a moment about the freedoms that we have. We, have. we have freedoms, and I'm not talking about being an American here, because our freedoms are greater than that. We're now free to live for Jesus. We're free to say no to sin, but we're also free to a whole host of other things. You see, we don't have to live by all the requirements of the law any longer, and so we're free. We can, we can eat what we want. Um, we're, we're free to drink alcohol or not. We're free to smoke or not smoke. I know this is going to be shocking to many of you. We're, we're free to wear masks or not wear masks. We're free to vaccinate or not. Might be stepping on some toes here. We're free to do lots of things. You are free to celebrate Halloween or to believe that celebrating Halloween is not good for you. It's coming up in a couple weeks. Hopefully I'm not messing with your plans right now. We're free to choose where our kids go to school and whether they're home or private or public school. We're, we're free to do all these things. We're free to choose what clothes we wear. And we're also free to decide what, what is modesty and what does that mean and how should we live and how does that look like? You know, are Christians, consider what some of the choices we have, you're, you're free to choose whether to do yoga or not. But then how does that choice affected by if the person leading that yoga class is a Hindu and practicing Hindu? Are you free to buy a lottery ticket or not? How, how can we honor the Sabbath? We're free to figure those things out. How do we, what does honoring the Sabbath command look like? What, we have all these freedoms and we have freedoms to, in our speech, and yet we're always to be seasoned with grace, but what does that look like? We're free to figure that out. Whether to support a social justice cause or not, we're free to do that. But do you notice in all those freedoms that I mentioned, they affect other people, right? Our freedoms affect other people, our freedoms affect our walk with God, and our freedoms actually are seen, or are really a manifestation of our walk with God. The choices that we make they're meaningful, they're significant. 
But most of the choices that we make, most of the freedoms that we have, they're they're not spelled out exactly in the Bible. So what are we to do? How do we exercise those things? Are we just meant to know our rights and then we just do that? Is knowing your rights, is that what's most important in the Christian walk? I think sometimes some Christians might have that perspective. If you look on Facebook, it's really important that we tell each other our rights, that we defend our rights, that we demand our rights. You ever find yourself doing that, by the way? You ever find yourself defending your rights? You ever find yourself demanding your rights? I know I do at times, you know, not only my rights at home, but, but my rights when, I, when I'm dealing with other people. How dare you say something that would impinge upon my rights, my freedoms as a Christian, yet Paul here, he's giving instruction to the church in Corinth on these very specific issues. He's using the issue of, of food sacrifice to idols, something they have a right to do of eating meat sacrifice to idols. They have a right to do that, but should they? How do they know? How do they know whether or not they should exercise their rights? Because merely knowing their rights is not the goal. So Paul tells us, merely knowing your rights without loving, it's dangerously proud. That's the first thing that we see in this passage is that merely knowing your rights without loving, that's dangerously proud. Most of us need help when it comes to what do we do with our rights? How do we live in a way that's loving with our rights? Because merely knowing your rights without loving is dangerously proud. In Corinth, this is not a common scenario for us, right? Most of us, when we sit down and we have a piece of meat, a steak or pork or whatever it is you like, you really enjoy, you know, for me, I like a piece of slow-cooked pork. You know, give me, give me some, some, some Boston butt that is on the smoker for 12 hours. Amen. Amen, exactly. Most of us don't think about that. If you were a Jew, you would have thought hard about that who became a Christian. But the church in Corinth, they, they were in this place where it wasn't just about food. The pagans, they, they believed that... that that the gods controlled every aspect of life. And so they had a whole myriad of gods. They had agricultural gods. They had the gods of the sea, the goddess of love, the god of war. They had the god of thunder, the god of fortune, the god of hunting and wilderness and wine and, and all kinds of other gods. And they believed that these gods would give you favor if you sacrificed to these gods. And so they would sacrifice meat to these gods. And then they would have a service and they would believe that that would give them good favor. Now, to some degree, it became just kind of the social thing. And so they would have these temple celebrations where they would invite the community and then they would, everybody would enjoy these things. But it was all done in the name of these gods. And so when they became a Christian, they wrestled with, am I allowed to do that? Can I, can I participate in something that's associated with the gods? I, I know now that, this is, that they're, they're not real, that there really aren't a myriad of gods. But what do I do? Because the fact is, is that the various trades and the guilds in Corinth in that day, um, they were all dedicated to a different God. And most people, in order to be successful in Corinth, they belonged to a guild or a trade or an association. They were networking. It was, you know, the, the ancient equivalent of networking. But they would have all their meetings in the temple of a different God. 
they would gather together in the temple of a different god. They would, they would have parties because it was, it was a, a big place to meet. So they would have parties in the temple. They would have weddings in the temple of these false gods. And so Christians wrestle with, well, hang on, wait a minute, can I, can I do that? Can I really do that? Other Christians understood, they knew the truth is that these false gods weren't real gods at all. And so for them, it didn't matter because they could ignore the fact it was dedicated to God because the God doesn't really exist. But it was a problem for a lot of people because almost all the meat sold in the marketplace was, was dedicated to a foreign god. And if you've come out of that culture where you really believed in these gods and you put your hope and your trust in confidence in these gods, then when you became a Christian, it might be a struggle because you think, oh no, can I even have anything to do with my old lifestyle? Because if I have something to do with that, I'm going to be worshiping that God. And so it was a challenge for them. Sometimes the upper class, they'd, they'd be expected the only way to get along socially is to go to these different feasts. And, and for those in, in lower classes, the only time they'd eat meat was when they would go to festivals dedicated to these false gods. This would be very difficult. It was, it was a real issue for them. But behind that issue, Paul is, is really talking about what their rights are and how do they exercise those rights. And what he's trying to show them is that merely knowing your rights without loving, it's is dangerously proud. If you just know your rights, but you're not doing that in the context of love, you're not exercising those rights in the context of love, is dangerously proud. Some of the church came to know that the idols weren't real, they don't have any power. For them, it didn't matter that, that a meat would be sacrificed to an idol because it, it didn't mean anything to them. Look down in your Bibles in verse 4. He says, therefore, Paul is affirming some of what they believed. He's affirming what they knew to be right about their rights. He says in verse 4, therefore, is the eating of food offered to idols? We know. This is what we know. An idol has no real existence. There's no such thing. An idol is just a carved image. It doesn't really exist in reality. You say it represents a God, but there's no God behind that. Now, later he's going to have something to say about the fact that we, we should have nothing to do with idols because they're associated with demonic things. But right now, he's trying to help them see that we know, we know that an idol has no existence. We know that there's no God but one. There's only one true God, so you don't have to be stumbled by being in a temple because it's not real. There's only one true God, so the God of the Bible. And then he tells us in verse 5, you know, we, we know that, that even though some recognize these many so-called gods, there's really no other true God, there's no other Lord that informs us is that, you know what, I, I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm eating in these different temples because there really is no other God, there's only God alone. So if I'm doing it to him, that's okay, and that's good knowledge. And he tells us in verse 6, he says, you know, they, they knew that God creates all things, that he's, he's the creator. Not all these other false little gods that they have. They don't, they don't control the weather. They don't control the crops. They don't control whether you love somebody or not. They don't control whether we're going to have a productive vineyard or not. And so he says, no, God created all things. He's, all things are from him. He's the creator of all things. He's the true God. And he's the one that we exist for. He's, and, and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's our Lord. He's our master. All these other false gods and lords there, we, we don't bow down to them. And, and Jesus is the one through whom all things are and through whom we exist. We don't depend on these false gods. And so he affirms that knowledge. That's what he does. He affirms that knowledge. It's true 
We don't have to worry about being enslaved to all those other false gods because we, we have one true God and we exist for him and he controls all things. They knew that they depended on the Lord and he's the one through whom we pray and trust in all things. And Now, I think for most of us, we don't struggle with any of those things. We know that God is the creator. We know that, that he created all things. We exist by him and through him and for him. And he's our Lord. He's our master. But how do we apply those things to how we live? How do we apply what we know? We, we know that, that God's grace came to set us free from having to keep the law because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. I think everybody here would know that, right? You can say right. Excellent. We know that we're not justified by keeping the law. We know that Christ came to fulfill the law to set us free from the curse of the law. But, but just knowing our rights, if we're not loving, is dangerously proud. That's what Paul's telling us. And he goes in the very beginning. So, so what he does is he, he talks about the issue, food sacrifice idols. He comes down to what they actually know about those things in, in verses 4 to 6. But then we see in, in 1 to 3 here is he talks about the motivation behind that. You know, sometimes we can know a lot about something and be proud and think that we're spiritual and mature. Do you, you, ever, you ever find yourself in that place where you, you know a lot about something and so you become proud about that thing? We, we've all, if you can't think of yourself that way, we've all met somebody else like that, right? And you can think of, in your mind, you can think of somebody you know right now, please don't say their name out loud, Somebody you know who knows a lot about something and full of knowledge, they think that they're mature, but they don't demonstrate maturity by their actions. Somebody has a lot of knowledge about God and good understanding of theology and the doctrine of church. They have strong convictions in different areas and they're happy to tell other people about those things, but they don't seem to be humble. They don't seem to sacrifice for the sake of others. They don't seem to love others. They don't seem to have fellowship. Merely possessing knowledge, it can puff us up, can't it? And so Paul here, he begins to argue that, that love must be the guiding principle. And he says that mere knowledge alone, it, it'll puff you up. If you're just knowing for the sake of knowing, you're going to be proud. And then he tells us in verse 2, look down your Bibles in verse 2, he says, if anyone thinks he knows something, if you imagine that you really know something, you don't know as you ought to know yet. What, what does he mean? He says, if you really think you know something, you, you probably don't really know very well. We can become deluded into thinking that because we know or understand something that we're spiritual. You ever hear a, a message and you're like, yeah, that was great. Or you ever read something in a book and you're like, that was awesome. And you can walk away from there thinking that, that because you know that, you're actually practicing that. But, but knowing is not enough. Mere knowledge can make you puffed up and is dangerous. Merely knowing the truth, having a deep understanding doesn't mean we're mature. There's, there's somebody I've known for almost 15 years and don't worry, they're not here. They're not in the room. They're not in the church, okay? So it's no, nobody here. There's a person I've known for about 15 years or so. They've studied a lot, they're very smart. They have multiple degrees. They know a lot about God. They know a lot about the Bible. They, they know a lot about their particular discipline. But they don't seem to actually, when you talk to them, when you get around them, when you see how they interact with other people, other believers, you, you realize that 
they don't actually practice what they preach. You know somebody like that? They don't seem to be humble. They don't seem to be loving. They don't know as they ought to know. And they're personalized. They're, they're dysfunctional. They don't seem to apply it. And yet they tell other people how to apply. And so for all their knowledge, I don't, I don't trust their advice. I don't trust their counsel. I wouldn't trust their teaching. And I can't recommend it to other people. And, and you know what? That's, that's probably at least half of the bloggers out there, Okay. There's a lot of people spouting a lot of knowledge without a lot of love. You ever met somebody like that? The reality is that often we can be people like that. Maybe we're that person for somebody else. You know, I've had meals with well-known Christian authors and bloggers, and after talking to them, I walk away, and I'm sad because I couldn't recommend their teaching after seeing their character. Knowledge is not the goal. Mere knowing. Now we have to know, but mere knowing is not enough. We must know God's word. We must understand God's word. We must read God's word. But just knowing God's word is not enough. Our knowledge is meant to be put into practice. I don't mean that any of us are perfect or any of us know 100%. And often we can actually be proud when we see other people like that and think that that's not us. If in your head you're thinking of all the people you know that I mentioned, and yet you're not realizing, oh, this is, might be me too, then maybe this applies to you as well. I know it applies to me. There's so much more that I know that I don't put into practice than the things that I do know and, and put into practice. And so by God's grace, I, I want to be humble. We want to humble ourselves. So if we think we know something, hey, wait a minute, we, we might not actually really know that because the, the goal of knowledge is love, is what Paul tells us. The truth is, the more we come to learn, it should make us more humble. The more we realize we know very little indeed, is what Paul's saying. The more, the more you learn, the more you know you, you don't know very much. And if you think you know a lot, you probably don't know very much, is what Paul's saying. And by the way, if you are leaning on your love and yet you're not loving, then that's proud. Knowledge is proud that it has learned so much. Wisdom is humble that it knows no more. Someone once said, knowledge is proud that it has learned so much. Wisdom is humble that it knows no more. But the most important thing is, is not that we know about God, but that we love God. That's what Paul's saying. Look down your Bibles. Look, look in verse 3. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Yeah, you have a lot of knowledge about God, but that's not the goal. If anyone loves God, we're known by God. It's not if anyone knows a lot about God, he's known by God. Nope. If that knowledge doesn't lead to love, you're not known by God, is what he's saying. But if that knowledge leads to love, you can be sure that you're known by God. Our goal in our knowing is to love to love God. And if we're loved by God, then God knows us. We're his own. The goal of, of knowing is to love God with and through our knowing. And, and, and knowing God is, is how you can be, not how you can be sure you're known by God. Loving God is how you can be sure you're known by God. Knowing God doesn't mean you have a relationship with God. Loving God means that God knows you. And the Holy Spirit, I think, wants us to see that, that merely 
knowing your rights without loving is dangerously proud. He said, it puffs you up. And the second thing I think that the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that merely knowing your rights without loving is destructively sinful. It's destructively sinful. Look down at verse seven. He says, not all possess the knowledge, but some, because they were formerly associated with idols, they, they eat that food and they believe that it's really offered to an idol and their conscience is convicted because it's weak. And it's defiled. Some of the church didn't know better. They didn't know that it didn't matter in one sense because there is no such thing as an idol. And so they were fearful. Their conscience was weak. They were afraid of sinning. And then they see this, this brother or sister who's mature, who they know better. They're eating to these idols and they go, well, it must be okay. And so actually they're tempted to go and sin. Some were tempted by how other people were living. By people exercising their Christian freedom or their rights, people were tempted to sin. Some people wrongly believe that even associating with something to do with their former way of life would make them sin. They believe that, that eating meat sacrificed to idols, it, it meant that they were endorsing the worship of a false god. And so when their brothers and sisters went and ate that meat, they thought that that, was, that meant that that was okay, that we could worship these false gods. And that was somehow a part of Christianity and they, they encourage syncretism or blending of these religions with Christianity. And Paul says, no, by, but by doing that, you're causing your brother or sister, by exercising your rights, what you know to be true, what you know your freedoms are, you might be leading others into sin. And so it's dangerously defiling. People who believed that they'd be affected by what they eat. He says, those aren't the people who have strong consciences, those are people with weak consciences. The people today who believe if I do certain things, it's gonna make me uh, really favorable towards God, or if I do certain things, it's gonna, gonna break the favor I have with God. Those are, those are people who are weak in their conscience. That's not people who are stronger, people who have a stricter conscience, whose conscience is more easily bothered. Those are the people who are weak in their conscience. And Paul says, we need to be careful that we don't cause those who are weaker to stumble because they might be defiled or they might be ruined in their walk with Christ. Those people have weak consciences. Yes, you know, food doesn't commend us to God. And whether we, we're not worse off if we do eat and we're not better off if we do. And he's, and he's, He's really speaking to both parties. Those who are, have this weak conscience think that, I'm, oh no, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be worse off if I do this certain thing. In this case, eating meat sacrificed to idols. In our case, it's something different. So I'm, I'm gonna, if I go to these movies that depict these things, then, then, I'm gonna, then those things are okay. Or if a brother or sister who's come out of a difficult lifestyle. They, they hear us listening to some of the music that they associate with that lifestyle and they're like, well, it must be okay so that some of these things that they speak about in these songs are okay too. And Paul says, well, those, those things don't commend you to God. They don't, we're not better off if we eat. We're not better off if we listen to music or don't listen to music. We're not better off if we watch a movie or don't watch a movie. We're not better off if we wear a mask or don't wear a mask, if we vaccinate or don't vaccinate. Those things don't commend you to God. Don't feel like you're inferior, but also don't feel like you're superior either. Those who have a strong conscience know better. 
that they're not defiled by what they eat because they knew that, that what they eat doesn't earn the favor before God. They knew rightly that they're not more holy if they eat the meat and that they're not more holy if they, if they only eat vegetables. You're not better off if you're um, a vegetarian or if you are a pescatarian or if you are an omnivore. And you're not worse off with God by any of those things either. It doesn't commend you to God. You're not better off if you're gluten-free or keto or GMO or whatever those things might be for you. Whether you think I should only eat raw foods or not, that's good. I can't live that way, but that's good for you. But whether we eat or drink or whatever we can do, we can say honestly, it can be done to and for the honor and glory of God. It's not a sin for a Christian, but... How are we making those decisions about what we do? For the church in Corinth, abstaining from meat sacrifice to idols, he's saying it doesn't make you more holy. Whether you exercise your right or abstain from your rights, it doesn't make you holy. It doesn't make you unholy. It doesn't commend you before God. It doesn't mean you're not commended before God. What are those rights that you feel you need to exercise as a Christian? What are those rights that other people bump into sometimes? You ever have somebody bump into your rights? You ever somebody else challenge your rights? How do you make a decision about how to live in regards to those rights? What informs those things? Paul here, he's saying that, that merely knowing your rights without loving, it can be destructively sinful. It's not just proud to merely know your rights, but it, we, we need to understand that just knowing our rights without being loving, it can be destructively sinful to somebody else as well. Look in verse 9, he says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The people in the church in Corinth, they knew that they had every right to eat meat. But it could be unloving and unhelpful for their fellow believers. And so the Apostle Paul writes, he says, Take care that this right of yours, it, it doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that at every time we're around somebody else who has a problem with a certain thing that we do, we shouldn't do it? I don't, I don't think so, because Paul was actually dead set against the legalists. If you look, he actually wrote a whole letter against the legalists, the letter to the church in Galatia. He didn't have any tolerance for people saying that we gain our approval before God by what we do, and so I don't think he's actually addressing just people who are merely legalists, who are, are professionals at saying what we should and shouldn't do. But I do think he's addressing believers who are weak and, and they're tempted to actually do those things. Most, most people who today, you think of some of, I'm going to touch on some toes here, some people who are strictly fundamentalist, the reality is they might not do any of the things they tell you not to do anyway. So they're not going to be tempted if you do them. They're not going to be tempted to actually do them. Paul's not addressing that party, but he's addressing those who actually might be tempted by your Christian liberties. When I was in my early 20s, I used to have a friend who, he was a relatively new Christian, and he had recently discovered the Old Testament dietary laws. He was reading through the Bible, start to finish, and he was reading the Old Testament. He was reading through the Old Testament, and he discovered that, oh my goodness, all these dietary laws existed for the Jews. And so maybe we should live like that too, because if the Jews were God's people, then so are we. And he failed to see that, that for them, that was a matter of them living holy and separate, and them obeying God was the means by which they drew close to God as they put their trust in God's commandments. 
He didn't see that Christ came to fulfill the law perfectly because we could never keep all those commandments. And so he's reading about how Jews shouldn't eat pork or shellfish and a whole host of other kinds of food. And so he got excited because he wanted to obey God. He wanted to live for God. His, his life had been changed. And so he, he, he came and he was, he was telling this, this small group that I led, this, this group of singles that I used to lead, and he was telling them, hey, you know, you, we shouldn't eat pork anymore. I've discovered this, that we can really cleanse ourselves and be more honorable to God if we don't eat pork, if we don't eat all these things that the Bible talks about. And, and so he started telling everybody in this college group that his newfound convictions and arguing that it should apply to us as well. Now, instead of taking him aside quietly or showing him the relevant New Testament scriptures and showing him how Jesus has now fulfilled the law perfectly and so that we're acceptable to God through Jesus, not through what we eat or wear, instead of explaining the covenant of grace that we live under now and that we're not any longer living under the law, I just told him he was wrong. That was really helpful. When he objected I got a, and he got angry, I not only corrected him, I, I mocked him. I, I looked down on him. I made fun of him. And needless to say, I didn't win my brother over to the truth. I wasn't being sensitive to him. I wasn't, wasn't deferring to him. I wasn't being gentle with him. I wasn't overlooking an area he was weak in. Instead, I was using my rights and forcing my rights on him And my knowledge puffed me up. I was proud. My knowledge wasn't coupled with love. And so it was empty. It was the antithesis of caring for them. It was the antithesis of loving him. And so my knowledge didn't lead me to love. My knowledge just puffed me up. And that was dangerous. Because it actually caused his brother to struggle. As Christians, we have many rights. But it doesn't mean that we must exercise them. The reality is that no Christian is free to assert their rights at the expense of not loving their neighbor and not loving God. The goal of our knowledge is so that we might love God more, so we might know how to love God. We're not free to force our standards of right and wrong on other believers who have, who have more or less sensitive consciences. And look down at verse 10, he says, if anybody sees you have knowledge eating in a, at an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? People in the church were flaunting their Christian freedoms and it was causing their fellow believers to stumble. When you exercise your Christian freedoms, how does it affect your brothers and sisters in the church? How does it affect those around you? When we went to ask that question, it's not just a mere matter of what are our rights. Who cares? The question is, How do our exercise of our rights affect the people around us? Is it loving? Is it loving God? Is it loving people around us? Paul here, he is referring to those who believe something is sin and they're tempted to sin. When a more knowledgeable Christian, a more mature Christian comes along and they indulge in that thing, they're tempted to do that thing. And Paul is saying, you know, just knowing your rights without loving and thinking about the consequence of how you exercise your rights, it's destructively sinful. It can actually cause harm to somebody else's walk. It can ruin somebody else's walk with Christ. Look down at verse 11. He says, oh, by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. The brother from whom Christ died, 
they're, they're in the process. Their walk is ruined. It's destroyed. It's the opposite of love. And so look in verse 12. He says, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak. He says, what you're really doing, it's, it's destructive and dangerous. When you just exercise your rights without thinking about your brothers and sisters in Christ and how it affects them and whether it's loving to them or not and, and not being willing to give up those rights, he says, that actually can lead them to sin and then in doing so, you sin. Yeah, you might be right, but if you're not loving, you're dead wrong. You can be right and note your rights and exercise your rights and sin against Christ, is what he's saying. But the culture says we have a right to do what we want, doesn't it? The culture around us, doesn't it preach that? We have a right to do what we want as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Who cares if it's hard for somebody else if they disagree? I don't care what you think. Deal with it. It's my right. You ever had that thought? It's the exaltation of self-expression. It's the, it's the exaltation of the self-actualization. It's, it's the self-justification of our positions based on our perceived rights. What are the perceived rights that you are defending yourself? What are those things that you champion? What are those things that when somebody else bumps up against your rights, you get angry about or you get defensive about? It might be because your motives are wrong. Our rights are meant to be used for the good of others. It's not can I do this, like the culture says. It's should I for the good of others. Should I do this? Does this help others and me love God more? Or is this something I can give up? Our freedom, Paul says, is meant to enable us to build each other up in love. Love builds up. Just knowing doesn't build anybody up. Just knowing your rights, demanding your rights, exercising your rights, it doesn't build up. Loving them builds them up. Are you loving? Or are you demanding your rights? Some demanded their freedoms without considering the impact on, your, on their brothers. And the, the reality is the exercise of our personal freedom is never just personal. Did you get that? The exercise of, of our personal freedoms is never just personal. It affects other people. I, I like the way that Stephen unput it. He says, if, if nervousness sets in when an individual thinks about freedoms he might need to give up for the common good, it's a clear indication he's enslaved by his entitlements. I want to say that again. If nervousness sets in when an individual thinks about freedoms that he might need to give up for the common good, that is a clear indication that he's enslaved by his entitlements. Is there something that you're afraid to give up? You might be enslaved by that entitlement. Because the reality is, Jesus came to die, to set us free, so that we can give up all of our rights. Because we're not pleasing to him because of our rights. We're, we don't, we're not commended by God because of our rights. We're commended by God because of Christ. And so he frees us up from being selfish. He frees us up from gratifying our own fleshly desires. He frees us up for demanding our own way. That's what he came to do. You know what, giving up our rights out of love, this is, this is the final thing that we're going to see, is that giving up our rights out of love, it's possible because of Christ's death. It's actually possible because of Christ's death. We're meant to have Christ's death in mind throughout this passage. And, and he's, he's telling us the motivation is the fact that Christ died 
for your brother and sister. Now, by implication, he's getting a C. He's also died for you. Christ died for your brother and sister. Christ died for you. Think about what it meant that he came, that the Lord of all creation came and he died for us. Think about that, that he, he had every right to be worshipped. The moment Jesus came to earth as a baby, he had every right for everyone to bow down. He could have demanded that. It would have been right and good if Jesus demanded worship immediately. He had a right to be born in a palace, not in a manger and wrapped in strips of cloth. He, he had a right to be born to the wealthiest of the wealthy. He had a right to be a ruler his entire life. He had a right to reign and rule. He had a right for people to respect him. He had a right for his brothers and sisters to give him the dignity that he deserved. He had a right for his parents to obey him, not to have to obey his parents. And what did he do? Christ died. He gave up his rights. Now, he didn't just, not just dying on the cross, but every day he died to his rights. Jesus says to the believers that if you want to follow after me, you take up your cross and follow me every day. Well, Jesus did that every day. Every day was a taking up of his cross before he actually took up his physical cross. Why did he do that? Jesus gave up every single right he gave up holding on to those rights. He, he had the right to be called God. He, he had the right to be worshipped as God, and yet he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. Why? Because he laid down his rights that he might love us. He gave up his rights so that we might be rightly found in him. He says that when you are sinning against your brothers and sisters, you're wounding their conscience when it's weak, you're actually sinning against Christ. They are fellow temples of the Holy Spirit. They are in Christ, and you're sinning against them by demanding your rights. And you're saying that, Jesus, you gave up all of your rights, but you're not worth me giving up mine. And Paul says, no, here's how you're supposed to live. Look, look in verse 13. He says, how do we apply this? He says, you know, give up your rights. If, he says, if food makes my brother stumble, whatever that food is, I won't even eat meat. That's a really big deal, by the way. At least for me, it would be a huge deal. Now, several of you are vegetarians, and you're saying, yeah, that's right. But I would say, are you willing to give up being a vegetarian? If it causes... Someone else will stumble. Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again. If my rights to do something cause my brother to stumble, they're not loving God, they're not loving other people, then I should be willing to give up those rights, whatever they might be, and it might be in all those categories I listed earlier. Where is God calling you to let go of your demand that your rights be met? Are you, where are you unwilling to give up your rights?
Paul here, he's not giving up his rights out of fear. He's giving up his rights out of love. Our rights are not what's most important. Our, the spiritual well-being of our fellow believers, whether we're loving them and loving God and how we exercise those rights is far more important. It doesn't mean always doing what only the weak can bear, but it does mean we should consider those we're in close relationships with and at times changing our behavior for the sake of loving them. Is there anything you're unwilling to give up, anything you're hanging on to? We can give those things up because Christ gave up all. Um, hopefully, as you came in, you got a little communion cup. Did everybody here get a communion? If you didn't get a communion cup, could you put your hand up really quickly? If you didn't, there's one in the back here. If the ushers could get in the back. Anybody else? need a communion cup. You can go ahead and open it up, by the way, right now so it won't distract you. I opened mine up earlier because I was like, I always have a hard time with it. The only way we can apply this passage to our lives is if we realize and we are more aware of the fact that Jesus gave his all. Do you know at the beginning of the letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that he, he preaches Christ crucified. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That's what he's doing here. He's applying the same doctrine of the crucifixion to our lives. If Christ died for us, he died to set us free from being enslaved to living for our rights. And he died giving up all of his rights. I want you to take the little wafer that tastes like styrofoam out if you... Um, it, it is bread. It really is bread. It's not styrofoam. Um, this bread is symbolic of the fact that Jesus was broken for us. He gave his life for us in every way. Every step of the way, Jesus offered up his life for us. He gave up every right so that we might have the right to enter into the throne room of grace so that we might have the right to be called children of God. That's how we can give up all of our rights, because you know what? We already have the greatest rights secured. We're children of God. We have the right to be called children of God. And so as we take this bread, let's take it together, knowing that he secured the greatest right for us, the right to come freely before the throne of grace, the right to be called children of God, the right to be forgiven because he earned that for us so He'll enable us to live for him. So let's take this bread, trusting in him. Let's take it together. Jesus, we are humbled by your sacrifice that you gave up your all to set us free so we might not be enslaved to living for ourselves. But now we are free to live for you. We're free to love you. We're free to love our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you that we can do this because all of your righteous life has been applied to us. All of our unrighteousness has already been dealt with on the cross. So Lord, help us live each day taking up our cross because you have already died for us and it's settled. In your name, amen. Well, open up the second part there and, and expose the juice here. This juice, it symbolizes 
the, the blood of the new covenant. The, the blood of the new covenant. What that means is that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been made clean and we enter into his throne room cleansed by his blood. We have a covenant that's secured by the death of Christ. We have a covenant now that's secured by Jesus shedding his blood for us. It's not secured by whether or not we exercise our rights. It's not secured by keeping God's commandments. Our covenant is secured by Jesus keeping it all, by Jesus paying it all, by Jesus' blood. That's our confidence. That's our hope. Let's drink the juice together, trusting in his covenant. Going to the band come up and we'll close with a song. Father, thank you that you have loved us unreservedly. God, you've given us your son. We did not have a right for you to give us your son, but you have given us your son freely so that we might have a right to worship you. Jesus, we didn't have a right for you to give your life up for us. We'd only earned disfavor. We'd only earned punishment and wrath by our rebellion. And yet, Jesus, you shed your blood so that we might be set free, so that we might come into your presence, we might be secure in you forever. And Lord, knowing that we're secure in you forever, Lord, we can be willing to give up whatever you call us to because we're secure in your love. God, help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.